Well, it is awesome to be together with y'all. There's not a word that I'm that I ever don't feel to some degree of excitement with, but I'm excited about this word not because Amos has changed his posture to encouragement versus seriousness, but because there's a place that I have long really not understood about the Lord that I think the Lord will give us some understanding for tonight. So we are going to be in Amos chapter 7. We're going to study about three visions that the Lord gives Amos. Uh, But first we're going to talk about what I think is a a very important theme that Amos will address that that we should have some understanding on first. In chapter 7, Amos is going to talk about the idea of God relenting, God repenting, Uh, some might even say God changing his mind. This idea is in scripture multiple times and I wonder if we've thought about it. Does God repent? Does God relent? Does God change his mind? I don't think you'd find many churches that would teach that God changes his mind, would you? No, because if God changes his mind, it seems to bring up a lot of inconsistency in his word. We rely on scriptures that say God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And to be the same doesn't seem to work with change, does it? So there's two things that I think we should consider first. The first is that we cannot apply our human condition to God. God is not bound or limited by our finite capacity for emotions, feelings, knowledge, and reactions. So we must consider what God and the context of we must consider God and the context of God and not under the constraints or limits of mankind. See, so when we hear that scripture is not consistent, It's because we are misapplying and misunderstanding what Scripture means. We are holding Scripture accountable to our limits and our constraints, and it is not. The second thing is language. A biblical word can have meanings that vary depending on context, just like we do. In fact, it's funny, Abigail has been learning about idioms this week in school. And that's kind of blowing my mind because a seven-year-old shouldn't be learning idioms. I didn't learn idioms until I was in, you know, the 20th grade. So I don't understand how she's learning about them, but she's teaching me how idioms can take meanings of words to render them very differently from one sentence to another. Why would we think any different from Scripture? Instead, we want to often read into Scripture our understanding of one word and apply it the same everywhere as long as it benefits us. So a biblical word can mean one thing and vary depending on the context. So we must draw out meaning from Scripture instead of reading in our context to Scripture. So the primary Hebrew word used to describe this idea that I'm going to at this point render repenting or relenting or changing one's mind. The word in Hebrew for this is nakam. 
and simply understood nakam means to be sorry or to console oneself. Now that's simple enough to understand. To be sorry or to console oneself. But even those two realities don't seem exactly the same, do they? Because when we're sorry, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're consoling ourselves. But to console oneself can mean to be sorry. That's the most simplest way to understand this word. It actually expresses the action meaning to sigh or to breathe heavily. Now that seems fitting with to be sorry or to console oneself, doesn't it? But one can sigh and mean different things. This word can imply to be sorry or having pity. In one sense, it means to change one's mind or to have compassion. So this word has a very broad umbrella of meaning, doesn't it? But all of these ideas really seem to go together, don't they? To be sorry, to console oneself or another, to have pity or compassion, to sigh, to relent. They all kind of connect, don't they? So I think that the Lord has given me a passage to understand this. So if you turn with me to 1 Samuel, if you're in the church's Bible, it'll be on page 322, 1 Samuel chapter 15. First Samuel chapter 15. So you'll remember in Samuel that God had anointed Saul as king over Israel. And we know what would happen. Saul would disobey again and again and again. He would disobey the prophet Samuel and he would disobey God himself. And so um, we're going to read about God's response. We'll read together in 1 Samuel 15 verses 10 and 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set Saul up as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Now the first few words of chapter, of, excuse me, of verse 11, it says, I greatly regret. This is our word, nakam. You may have a different translation. The New King James says, I greatly regret that I. The King James says, it repenteth me. The NLT, the New Living Translation says, I am sorry that. Now, even these three seem very different from one another, don't they? They're not really, it's just what we understand them to be saying. Are we seeking to see what the Lord is conveying or what we want to imagine the Lord saying? That's the crux of this message tonight. Are we seeking to hear what the Lord is saying? Are we seeking to tell the Lord what we want to hear? There are many wormholes that Bible scholars and thinkers go on, like what God knows when he knows it and how God, what God knows influences his thinking and doing. Now think about that because we, we cannot see the future. We don't know what's going to happen. Funny enough, we read in scripture what will happen if we do certain things, yet we do certain things even though scripture warns us. 
But God, on the other hand, knows what will happen, right? Scripture tells us that he knows all things, that he knows what will happen. So how does God knowing what will happen impact how God feels about things? So some suggest that God, that since God repents or regrets making Saul king, that God didn't know it would turn out that way. Hmm. That maybe if God had it to do over again, he wouldn't name Saul king. Otherwise, why would God repent or regret if he knew beforehand that Saul would turn out to be disobedient? It says here that I greatly regret, and some even translate this, that God says he is sorry, right? That he repents. Some even translate it to say that, um, essentially, that God changes his mind right here, that he wished he hadn't done it. That doesn't seem to work with an all-knowing, omniscient God. So this must mean something different. But acknowledging this will allow us to discover some remarkable things. The first thing that we should see in verse 11 is that it says, I greatly regret. I and me in every translation of this word and this phrase. Meaning that God is not apologizing to anyone but lamenting to himself. The second thing is that there is a complexity to God's emotions that I believe is beyond our comprehension. We heard it in this song that we just sang, that the the writer of the song says, I don't understand God's love. I can't fathom it. I can't really comprehend it to the way that I know I should be able to, but I know that I want it and that I need it. I do think that we can comprehend a degree of God's love and what is being said here, but we certainly can't misapply our understanding to it. So there's a complexity to God's emotions that I believe are beyond our comprehension. It is difficult to imagine that God could lament a state of affairs that he brought about, right? He made Saul king. Now, this is a a later point in a series of events where the people of God continue to pressure and pressure and pressure God and say, this is what we want. So finally, God does bring them this king. But God now laments it. Consider this. God is holy, and his wrath against sin must be quenched. But at the same time, Scripture tells us that God is love and has compassion for all that he has made these are complex realities of who God is and it's the reason that Jesus was sent to earth because of God's holiness there is wrath for sin but because of God's compassion he sent his son to redeem us for his purpose now what's most important in understanding this verse in 1 Samuel 15 is that we look over from verse 11 to verses 28 and 29. Verse 28 says, So so Samuel said to him, The Lord, this is Samuel speaking to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. It has been given to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel, this is speaking of God, the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent. He is not a man that he should relent. 
Now this is even more complex than what we've just read, right? I should be clear that this word for relent here is the same word that we've read over here in verse 11. Same words. So we're told over here that God relents, and that we're told over here that God doesn't relent. He is not like a man that he should need to relent. So the meaning of this verse, verse 29, seems to be that even though God laments the outcome of Saul being king, he is distinguished from mankind who would either lie or repent for their actions. Does that make sense? God laments what Saul has done, but God is not a man that he should change his mind or apologize for what he has done. Same word, Nakam. Now here's what I see and what I believe is most significant for us to understand. Humans, Saul, Samuel, David, us, we lament our own actions because we don't have the knowledge of what they will truly do. The lament, the repent, is after the fact for what has happened and for the consequences of our actions. God laments sinful actions of mankind in spite of what he knows. God knew what Saul would do. God knows what each and every one of us will do. God still chooses to love us and have compassion on us and aim to use us and redeem us in spite of what he knows we will do. He is not a man. So when he considers or looks back on things, he regrets or laments Saul as king because of the evil, pain, and misery that his sin would cause. So for now, we will keep this in the back of our minds because it is so important for understanding what we will read together in Amos. So turn with me now to chapter 7 of Amos. If you're in the church's Bible, it will be on page 1062. Amos chapter 7. Okay, so tonight we will study three different visions that the Lord gives Amos. I love that, that Amos kind of keeps us guessing every chapter what is going to come next. We go from um, judgments against the nations to sermons that the, the Lord gives Amos to give and visions that the Lord gives Amos. So the first part of chapter 7 verses 1 through 9 are three separate visions. And each vision really could, could be independent of one another, but really grows um, more complete and comprehensive with the, the second and the third. So the first that we'll read about is in verses 1 through 3, the vision of the locusts. The second is vision of fire. And the third is the vision of the plumb line. So the first two visions are really going to follow suit pretty consistently and have similar form. And the third is going to be a bit different, but each are going to have these same three things. 
The Lord is going to give a vision of judgment from the Lord to Amos. And Amos is going to respond to this vision. And then the Lord will respond to Amos. So visions are pretty common. Uh, Deborah talks about visions and dreams often, that a, a lot of scripture is through dreams and visions. Uh, visions are especially common among the prophets like Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah. And, and if you think about what a vision does, is it has a dramatic effect on the person receiving it. It is an intimate level of communication to God that really affects the way they speak like no other. They have seen something. They have connected with, this, with the Lord in the spiritual realm to encounter this truth all at once. So these visions that we're going to read from Amos are not a diary entry that he keeps to himself, but these visions are, are given to Israel. And we'll study next week how uh, they affect his interaction with others. So they were given publicly, and so they are for us. So if you, if you look at them, if you look in your Bible, it may have some headings above it that kind of help you to mark out each of these visions. Uh, if it doesn't, you might see emboldened 1, verse 1, verse 4, and verse 7. But if you look at them, they're, they're similar in length. They're similar in pattern. The first two say uh, a majority of the same words. Okay, so let's read together the first vision, the vision of the locusts. Thus says the Lord God, excuse me, thus the Lord God showed me. Behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the lake crop. Indeed, it was the lake crop after the king's mowings. And it was so when they had finished eating the grass of the land that I said, O Lord God, forgive me, I pray. Excuse me, forgive, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, says the Lord. Okay, so this is the first vision, and, and really it, it seems in a sense pretty straightforward. It has each of these, these three things. So the, the first thing that we see is that the Lord gives Amos this vision, that thus the Lord showed me. And he talks about how the Lord formed these locust swarms. Now as soon as we hear that we should cringe because we're thinking of Egypt when locusts were sent as a plague to destroy all the vegetation on the land. And that's exactly what the Lord's saying. That he has formed, that this is not an accident, that they, he has sent these locust swarms. At the beginning of the late crop it was, it was indeed it was the late crop after the king's mowing. So after the king had gotten what he wanted from the land, he would turn the vegetation over to everyone else. So after that, the Lord sent this locust swarm to devour all. All the way down to the nub, to the root, there was nothing left of any of the vegetation on the land. Right, this would represent, of course, Israel's livelihood, their food, their strength, their everything. They could not survive without the food the crops of the land. Um, excuse me. Um, so God is showing Amos how his judgment would affect the Israelites. But I believe equally what this vision and this interaction shows is the Lord's heart and Amos's heart. I'll save that for a moment. 
it's as if Amos is in this vision. In verse 2, it says, And so it was when they had finished eating the grass of the land that I said. So it's like Amos is there physically, tangibly seeing this destruction happen to the land. And he said, is what it says, O Lord, forgive me, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. And the thing that I want to say here is I believe that these visions represent what the prophet truly can see. Every prophet in scripture sees the destruction that is happening to God's people. They don't see it. They ignore it. They refuse to hear it. But the prophet knows. It's why the prophets seem radical and intense because they see and know the destruction that is happening. It's as if Amos could reach out and swat these locusts that he can see. So once they stop, he says this. He cries out to the Lord. Few words I want us to see here. The first is forgive. The first thing Amos is going to do is say, forgive them. It's as if Amos is saying, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. Not that they're ignorant of your laws and your ways, but that they don't know the spiritual reality and the mistakes that they're making and the calamity that they are inviting upon them. That they don't see the great reality of what they're choosing to align with. Forgive them, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand, right? Jacob is, of course, Israel, and Israel is God's people. He says that Jacob may stand. Now, this, this actually makes a level of sense physically. When these locusts are swarming, I would imagine it would be pretty easy to be toppled over by them. But he's saying spiritually that they may stand, that they may survive, that they may not be overtaken. He goes on to say because, because Jacob is small. right? Jacob is really small and inconsequential in the scheme of God's world. They think they're great. They think they're powerful. They think they're strong. They think that God's covenant will mean they can do whatever they want and there will never be any price to pay. But he says they're small. They're really not. They're weak. They'll be surrounded on all sides. They'll be overtaken. Lord, remember Israel that they're really frail. That's what Amos sees. Amos sees their frailty. And I believe when, when Amos cried out for this, the Lord recognized their frailty too. Amos interceded for the Israelites. He asked God to pardon them. Amos called on the God of mercy to forgive the Israelites. He recognized the extent of this vision. This was a plague of judgment. He begged God to turn his judgment away from Israel because they were small. They needed God's grace and mercy. Verse 3, it says, maybe in your translation, so the Lord relented concerning this. This word relented is our word nakam. Relented, repented, was sorry, or had pity. See, I believe that if we read this to mean that God slowly went, hmm, yeah, you know, I think I am going to change my mind. I don't think I'll do that. We miss out on the heart of God. We misunderstand the heart of God, and we set ourselves up for judgment when we do this. And I'll get to that soon. 
I believe that we're to, we're to understand this as God having pity and compassion, which is what this word means in this context, I believe. I believe that God has pity on Israel. He has mercy on Israel. He sees that even in their sin, even with their knowledge, even with their choice, even in their rebellion, that they don't understand the fullness of what they do. So he has pity on them. His response to Amos is mercy to Israel. He says, it shall not be, said the Lord. Next, we're going to move on to the second vision, the vision of fire. Read with me in in verse 4. Thus the Lord God called, or excuse me, showed me, behold, the Lord God called for conflict by fire and consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. Then I said, O Lord God, cease, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This, this vision sounds almost identical to the first one, doesn't it? We can, we can change that God formed locusts and sent them to he, this is a, a very amazing statement, he called for conflict by fire. Oh, how we reduce even God's fire in our life and even the fire that he sent on these other nations. He called for chaos, for conflict by fire. And it consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. Amos is there. He's watching it happen. He knows the reality of God's judgment and wrath for those who refuse him. He sees it and it says, Then he said in verse 5, O Lord God, cease, I pray. So Amos is moved from asking for forgiveness to saying, please stop. Please stop, Lord. Oh, that Jacob may stand. He, he changes what he's asking for, but he doesn't change why he's asking for it. He moves from asking for forgiveness to asking the Lord to stop, but all for the same purpose that Israel may stand. He reminds them that Israel is small. you can see the distinction between the prophet and the Lord. The Lord is holy. His nature requires justice and judgment. The prophet's desire is for mercy for God's people. And that is so important that we should see this in Amos, that a second time he's asking for mercy for God's people. How often do we hear the voice of the prophet and we refuse it? We don't know that it's asking for mercy from the Lord. There's no prophet or no preacher in scripture that offers just encouragement. See, encouragement without mercy, encouragement out of the the line of justice is really just what we want to hear. But the prophet and the word Word to the Lord is for mercy from what is due. Now again, I believe that here God has pity on Israel. And I'm using this word pity because it is what this word means, but it's, it's so distinct from some of the others that seem to, to draw back to simply God changing his mind. Do you see the difference between God simply changing his mind and God having pity? I believe that we have misapplied our understanding of the cross. That God simply changed his mind from his wrath. It makes it easier on us, right? 
It makes it easier for us to spit on the grave of Jesus and refuse what he has offered us. God didn't change his mind. He had pity and compassion on us. He has mercy again on Israel. I'll say it again. He sees that even in their sin, even with their knowledge, even in their rebellion, even with their choice, they don't understand the fullness of what they're doing. And so his response again is that it shall not be. This also shall not be, said the Lord. But now we come to the third vision, the vision of the plumb line. And that's what's pictured here if you are wondering. This is a plumb line. Read with me verses 7 through 9. Thus he showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them any more. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and their sanctuaries of Israel will be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. So this vision intensifies. Um, God shows Amos... Um, oh, sorry. Um, God shows Amos again another vision. Now he includes Amos in this vision. Amos is there taking place, and he, he sees that there is this plumb line, and he sees the Lord holding it while sitting on a wall, and he asks Amos what he sees. And this is so important because Amos sees truly what the Lord is doing, right? The Lord doesn't correct Amos and go, no, that's not right. You didn't see a plumb line. You just saw me holding a fish on a string. No, Amos sees exactly what the Lord showed him. This time the vision showed the standard for Israel, which is a plumb line that God used to hold his people accountable. So a, a plumb line, if, if you're not a, a carpenter, uh, if you're not a, a bricklayer, is a string or a rope with a plummet hanging from it. Sometimes made with, with metal or lead, it's tied to the bottom. And one would stand on a wall like this and they would fasten the plumb line to hang down from it. And the plumb line would maybe swing a little bit back and forth, but eventually gravity would stop it and it would show if the wall was truly plumb. If the wall was bulging, if it was leaning, or if it was straight and true. Plumb lines are mentioned throughout Scripture, amazingly enough, and 2 Kings 21 and Isaiah 28 and Lamentations 2, all used to describe how God holds his people accountable. I understand that in Amos' day, if a builder determined that a wall was not plumb or wasn't straight or true, they would tear it down to the point where it was plumb and they would start over. For a wall that wasn't plumb would never stand. It would topple. It could not bear weight. Um, and it was worthless. So very different from the first two visions. Now God is standing on the wall. Does it say standing or 
sitting. The Lord stood on the wall, made with a plumb line. I love that. The wall was made with a plumb line. And then the Lord is hanging the plumb line from it so that Amos could see that it was plumb. Very different because Amos was mentioning how Israel wouldn't be able to stand. In the first two visions, Amos says, O Lord, have mercy so that Israel can stand. What would we think Amos really meant by that? That they wouldn't just be devoured or that they would be able to truly stand. Standing and walking were synonyms and or idioms in Hebrew for what it meant to truly be with the Lord, to be in right standing with the Lord. And now God's telling them how to stand. See, Amos said, don't destroy them so that they, because they won't be able to stand if you do. And the Lord says, this is how they're to stand. He's to be their guide. He is to be their measure. But God will tear apart walls that are not plumb with righteousness. So these visions of Amos are, um, are pretty straightforward um, and, and really lay everything out there pretty easy to understand, I think. But a few things that I want to share that the Lord has shown me this week. So the first is that there are three visions here. And these three, three visions really represent the fullness of God's opportunity to us right? Three is a picture of completeness or fullness. And this is what God has given us. In every situation that God has, has spoken to us, that he is showing us, he gives us the full measure of his opportunity. Will it take one? Will it take two? Or will it take that third level of finality to get our attention? These three visions represent what prophets truly see, and that is imminent judgment for sin. I think that this, this idea of God changing his mind is so prevalent in our church today. We might not really say that, but I think that it's so easy to align with that reality that surely not, surely not God, surely you won't truly send judgment for me. Surely these things happening are not things that you have allowed. Surely not. But the prophet sees these things. The prophet knows that judgment is imminent for sin. Oh, that Israel may stand. This is Amos's criteria in asking for mercy that Israel may stand. And I love this because I think, I wonder every time we pray for mercy, what we're truly praying for. Are we praying for it to stop? Are we praying for forgiveness? Are we praying for it to stop and for forgiveness that we may stand? That was Amos's goal. Any prophet, any teacher that preaches anything other, that's a false teaching. It's not consistent with scripture. We are to be able to stand for God's purpose. God's response is that he would make them as a wall that stands straight. I love this picture, right? We really can't argue with a plumb wall, can we? 
I framed houses for a short period of time. That's the, the wood part of the house. And one of the things that I learned was that a lock can be hidden by drywall. A lock can be hidden by trim. But you tear those things off and you can see the walls that are plumb and the walls that are not. Last week, um, I had to pull our dishwasher out to kind of assess some things. And I had to move the levelers up on it to take it out. And when I put it back in, it was quite a feat. In fact, I still don't think that the dishwasher is perfectly level. It is level enough. But the more that I tweak one leg, the other has to be tweaked. And what I saw was that it is a very precise science to have plumbness. It's a lot easier to just put the cover back on and pretend that it's good. God formed the locust swarms and he called for conflict by fire, but were not these his mercy also? Judgment, yes, but even in judgment, we should recognize them for God's salvation. See, I see even Amos saying, Lord, please don't do this. Now, if we just stopped there, we'd think that Amos was asking for the easy way out. But he wasn't. He was saying, what will produce them to be able to stand? God's pity, even in the first two visions, was from the pain of judgment. I see these first two visions. Excuse me, I'm going to move over that. So God, I see, was trying to communicate through what seemed like less aggressive means. Right, they'd still be on the land. They wouldn't have any food. Maybe the land would be consumed by fire, but they'd still have the land. But now they will be driven from the land by the sword. What I see, and, and really amazingly, in all of these places is that the Lord knows best. We like pity, we like compassion, but we don't like judgment. Yet both of these can be equally for the Lord's purpose. We may see and imagine mercy as God's best and judgment as just God's anger being poured out. And I think that's in our nature to see but God knows what is required for his purpose. See, I believe even when Amos prayed that, God knew that that would not correct Israel. The locusts, the fire, were judgment. Israel wouldn't have either one of them. It had to be the third. Which begs the question for each of us, which will it require? If the Lord is speaking to you, I pray that you don't waste his time of pity, his time of compassion, but that you act now before the consequences of sin comes. At the same time, if the judgment has come, recognize the mercy in it. The plumb line that the Lord has set before us that we might stand up straight and upright not bowing or bulging or leaning, but standing straight and true. Amen.